Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you and pray that you will, uh, that your word will divide us, joint and marrow, prepare us for the altar fire of your spirit so that your spirit can come into our hearts and lives and teach us from your written word today. I pray that the things I say will be faithful to your written word and that what I say will honor you, encourage the body of saints who are here present today, and all of this for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so this week we're finally getting into the text of Leviticus itself. Um, we've stopped our pre-Leviticus um, study, uh, at least, in, I think that's it. So if anyone had in a... <laughs> if anyone uh, who, in a family who can share or something like that, you've, you've got uh, mul- multiple handouts, maybe pass one along to somebody else. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll stop with the pre-Leviticus stuff uh, in as much as that's possible. Uh, if, if you don't know by now, I tend to see uh, all of Scripture as in one way or another connected to all other parts of Scripture. And so um, it, gets, it becomes difficult to not talk about the book of Genesis or Exodus or, I don't know, 2 Corinthians or something, even when you're talking about Leviticus and vice versa. But um, I like the way that the, uh, the Bible Project uh, guys, if you haven't listened to that podcast, it's, it's uh, really good. Uh, but they, they talk in terms of hyperlinks. That's a super, uh, you know, up-to-date technical uh, sort of thing, but they say that, you know, some passages in, in Scripture are hyperlinks to others, right? And um, I think that's, that's, that's right, and uh, some ideas are hyperlinks to other ideas, even if not, ex- you know, some one passage in particular. But uh, we are going to try to stop with the pre-Leviticus stuff in as much as we can and focus solely on the text of the Leviticus from, from this point forward. So um, let's see here. I guess in order to do that, we'll wait. We'll read Leviticus 1 in just a moment, but I want to make a few opening comments first. So um, the, the book of Exodus closed in chapter 40. That's the last chapter of the book of Exodus. And uh, what was significant uh, there was that Yahweh was unapproachable um, by the people of Israel. And this is because we know this because only Moses could ascend to the top of Mount Sinai and be with God and not die. The people couldn't even touch the base of the mountain, and that was revealed in Exodus 19, because if they touched it, they would die. Or if their animals touched it, even their animals would die. Um, And that's kind of interesting um, in some ways, especially if you consider the connection in Scripture between animals and humans, Um, especially in the Levitical cultists, that um, animals stand in as substitutes for human beings. Anyway, it's just crossed my mind. I wonder if there's something there. Um, but the fact that human beings can't approach God um, and, and live, is it seems like bad news because what our pre-Leviticus study has uh, revealed to us is that it's exactly what human beings need. They need to be in God's life-giving presence. This is, remember, humanity's fundamental problem, uh, being exiled from the garden. And, uh, but this is also... Uh, not actually at the, at the uh, last bad news, because what we find is the book of Leviticus is all about good news. It's all about gospel. 
And that seems strange because we associate these Old Testament books, especially the first five Old Testament books, the Pentateuch, we associate them with the law. Um, but I actually want to suggest to you that God's law is, uh, in some sense, gospel. It's good news. Um, and in particular, the, the laws regarding um, this uh, sacrificial cultus that Israel develops, that we see developed in the book of Leviticus. It's good news because Yahweh has come down and opened up a way for human beings to once again fellowship with him. That's good news. He's not leaving them to the exile that took place at Eden. He's bringing them back into the garden. So within the first seven chapters of Leviticus, um, we're introduced to a number of offerings or sacrifices. And uh, chapter one, which is what we're going to focus on today, that discusses the Olah offering. And um, it's often referred to as the burnt or whole burnt offering. And uh, for reasons that we'll get into today, but it's better translated and understood just as a theological, conceptual matter. It's better understood as an ascension offering, a going up offering or sacrifice, okay? Chapter two details the minka offering. And the minka offering is uh, often referred to or translated as the grain offering. We'll talk about why grain offering probably isn't the best uh, <laughs> translation. Um, uh, uh, both linguistically and theologically, conceptually, uh, it, the grain offering is probably not the best translation of, of minka and the kind of offering a minka is. Uh, it's probably better understood as a tribute offering, and we'll get into that either next week or the following week. But chapter 3 tells us about the peace offering or the fellowship offering, and that one seems like it's probably translated just fine. And then chapters 4 through 7 tell us about the sin and guilt offerings. And like I said, today we're going to um, just focus on chapter 1, try not to get uh, ahead of ourselves too much, okay? So with that being said, let's, uh, it's on your handout, it'll be the second slide there. Let's uh, take a look at Leviticus chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. The Lord God called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the, uh, on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar." But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar." And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. 
and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, thank you. And now what I want to do is just take a few moments to sort of walk through, almost verse by verse, uh, this chapter. We're, when I say verse by verse, I really mean at least for the first, I think, ten verses, or, yeah, uh, nine verses, really. We'll, we'll pretty much go verse by verse. Uh, but as you can see already, one of the reasons we're going to do that is because uh, verses 10 through 13 sort of repeat the same sort of process um, as verses 1 through 9, but uh, that process just involves a different kind of animal. It involves a flock animal rather than a herd animal. So we'll mainly focus on 1 through 9 and go verse by verse through that, but I'll say something about the rest of the chapter too. So, um, so Leviticus uh, chapter 1, verse 1, opens by the Lord calling to Moses from the tabernacle. And um, we talked a few weeks ago about how the tabernacle has become a new Mount Eden, the original mountain of God, and also a new Sinai. Yahweh's glory cloud was on Sinai uh, when he met with Moses there in the, uh, as sort of the priestly representative of the people who ascended up the mountain. And we also saw in Exodus 40, at the, and that's at the close of the book of Exodus, how Yahweh's glory cloud traveled from Sinai and then went and settled on the tabernacle making it that new mountain. It's the new Sinai, okay? And so the tabernacle as a new mountain, this is the, the place where Yahweh dwells now. His glory cloud is there, just like it was in Eden, or just like he was in Eden. And this is a part of the significance of verse 1, that Yahweh is now with his people. And had we not really spent, see, he's, he's not just with his people, he's with his people uh, on his or in his tabernacle mountain hyphenated, tabernacle, hyphen, mountain, right? That's how and where he's with his people. And remember, this is good news. This ought to have been good news to the people of Israel because they knew that their, our first parents, Adam and Eve, had been exiled from God's holy mountain of Eden. And now Yahweh's got his new mountain he's established right in their midst. That's great news. It ought to have been for people who loved Yahweh and trusted him. Now, um, I think if, if we wouldn't have spent, you know, these past few weeks, I know it may have seemed a bit laborious at times, but doing this, this pre-Leviticus portion, we, I don't think we would really be able to appreciate the significance of verse 1 of Leviticus um, and the, sort of the narrative depth of it, that, Yah, that the, the fact that Yahweh's calling out to Moses from the tabernacle. That, just that first verse, that idea, Yahweh calling out to Moses from the tabernacle, is packed with meaning. 
It tells the whole history of the human race up to this point. It tells that story of uh, being in a paradise garden with God in fellowship with him and then sinning, human rebellion, and then exile. Just verse 1 of Leviticus actually has all that packed right into it. Does, you see this? Does it make sense? <clears throat> okay, let's move to verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So Moses tells the people that they're there to bring offerings to the Lord, and the Hebrew term used here for offering is korban. And it means fundamentally to draw near. A korban is just a drawing near kind of thing. So in this verse, when Yahweh tells the Israelites to bring their offerings, and I actually heard Tim Mackey put it roughly this way. He's one of the Bible Project guys. Uh, when, he te- when Yahweh tells the people to bring their offerings and that their offerings uh, will need to be from the herd or the flock, he's basically saying, when you draw near to me with your drawing near things, they will need to come from the herd or the flock. That would be a way of understanding it. The point is, because this word korban, again, it means to draw near. The point is, and here's more good news just in the second verse of Leviticus, is, hey, when you draw near to me, I'm letting you come near to me. I've come to you, and I've established my new holy mountain where my presence is among you. You are my people, and now I'm letting you draw near to me on that mountain. And this is unheard of. This is, in some sense, unparalleled good news um, in Israel's recent history, because just remember back in Exodus 40, they could not do this. They couldn't do then what they're about to do right now. You see this? They're going to draw near to God on his holy mountain. Um, through their sacrifices, but they could not do this at Mount Sinai. Only Moses could. Okay, so what does it mean for their offerings to come from the herd of the flock? Well, if you look at verse 5, if it comes from the herd, it's a bull. And if you go look at verse 10, if it comes from the flock, it's a, it's a ram or a goat. Okay, that's all that is. So, Um, Let's go to verses 3 and 4. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. In verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So we see in verse 3 that this particular offering is referred to in many of our English translations, including the ESV that I have up here, as a burnt offering in other places, a whole burnt offering. And that has mostly to do with the fact that all of the animal, with the exception of its skin, if you go to Leviticus chapter 7, verse 8, the priest was allowed to take the skin of the whole burnt offering, or I'm going to give you a different name for that offering in a second, but the priest was allowed to take that skin for himself, okay, and keep it. Um, Most commentators agree that a better translation, and, and again, theological understanding of the Hebrew term used to describe this sacrifice or offering, which again is olah, is actually ascension offering. It's better understood, better translated, so as a linguistic matter, and also better understood as a conceptual matter, as an ascension offering rather than a whole burnt offering. And I'll just give you, this is just something I liked the way Peter Lightheart put it, um, but I've found this in numerous commentaries and numerous uh, uh, other writers talk about this. But, you know, if Michael Neal's going to give, you know, airplay to anybody, it's going to be Peter Lightheart, right? <laughs> That's a joke. I don't even know. Some of you not, anyway. uh, 
So let me just read to you. This will be on your next, uh, your next slide, OK? Um, for some reason, my slides aren't working. But uh, is, that, is that up there? Do you see? Is that working? Yes. Oh, OK, weird. Oh. OK, cool. The normal word, this is, quote, the normal word, O law, that is translated, excuse me, as burnt offering and whole burnt offering has nothing to do with either burning or wholeness. It is the noun form of a verb, and I think the verb is Allah, if I'm not mistaken, meaning to go up, to ascend, to climb. The reason for translating it as burnt offering is not difficult to see. After all, the burnt offering was the only offering wholly consumed in the altar fire. Yet the names of the other offerings have nothing to do with the disposition of the animal's flesh or blood. The sin offering is not called the sprinkling offering, though the sprinkling of blood is highlighted in the rite of the sin offering in Leviticus 4. The peace offering is not called the partly eaten offering, though the communion meal is highlighted, and that's highlighted in Leviticus 3. Instead, the names of the other offerings tell us something about the meaning of the offering. And I believe that emphasis is original. Not something about the right, and it is only reasonable to conclude that the name of the burnt offering does the same. All of the offerings picture the ascension or the glorification of the animal or cereal. And by cereal, he's referencing the so-called grain offering, Leviticus 2, into the cloud of Yahweh's or God's presence. The burnt offering, however, pictures this more dramatically than the others, <clears throat> since the whole animal ascends. Because the burning is highlighted in this offering, it is preeminently the ascension offering, end quote. So the ascension offering is, uh, and this is how it comes out in the Hebrew, is a korban olah or olah korban. And it's a drawing near to Yahweh by way of ascending. That's how you draw near, that's how you korban to Yahweh. With this offering, you, cor, you korban, you draw near by ascending. Okay, makes sense? Another thing we see in verse 3 is that the herd animal, the bull, has to be just that. It has to be a bull, a male. And it has to be without blemish. And this is uh, because, as we see, uh, also saw in verse 3, that the animal is a substitute for the worshiper. The animal stands in the place of the worshiper. The bull is brought by the sinner so that he, the sinner, may be accepted before the Lord. That's what verse 3 says. <clears throat> Because the worshiper is a sinner and cannot ascend himself into God's presence without God's holiness killing him, he can enter only through a sinless or, here's another word, blameless substitute. And so I said blameless, and I'm going to explain this. So here's again a place where our English translations could probably improve a bit, according to most um, scholars I'm familiar with who are studying Leviticus. And this is what uh, Michael Morales has to say about this. He, there's a great, uh, great article in this book called So Great a Salvation, a Dialogue on Atonement in Hebrews. And um, uh, Morales' article is entitled Atonement in Ancient Israel, the Whole Burnt Offering as Central to Israel's Cult. Highly recommend you, you can find this article online. You don't need special journal access or anything. Um, I highly recommend you get this and just read it sometime or read chunks of it if you decide to study through Leviticus on your own. It's, it's, it's great. Um, and he dips into, uh, into pre-Leviticus stuff. What was that? Why does he use the term cult? 
Yeah, it does now, but they just mean just a set of ritual practices. That's all it means, yeah, yeah, uh, commitments. Um, but, uh, okay, yeah, so let me, let me just uh, read to you what he says about translating um, uh, this as unblemished, okay? So this is what he says. Unfortunately, the typical translation unblemished misses the symbolic import. Used of human beings, the term is translated blameless or wholehearted and is set forth in Scripture as a prerequisite for drawing near to the abode of Yahweh, whether at his tabernacle slash temple or at the summit of his holy mountain. As such, the animal represents the blameless life able to draw near to Yahweh's presence, consecrated on behalf of the worshiper so that the Israelite approaches Yahweh vicariously. Likely, the hand-leading rite established the substitutionary function of the animal. Forgive the uh, embarrassing typo in there. I, I went and hand-corrected. Um, I think it was in there. But uh, this is what happens when you, you go and uh, uh, create a slide in the wee hours of the morning. <laughs> and then don't proofread it well enough, I guess. Uh, anyway, um, it was actually in my... my uh, manuscript here too, so uh, I just copied and pasted from that for the slide. And anyway, uh, forgive me for that. So let's see. Let's go. Let's uh, elsewhere. I want to keep reading about this. Morales writes: the Israelites leaning his hand heavily upon the animal's head is a dramatic, and we've talked about this, but it can't be over overstated. A dramatic declaration that he is the animal, that it is taking his place in the ritual. Unable to ascend God's holy mountain of himself, the Israelite will ascend through his blameless substitute. The hand-leaning rite establishes this necessary identification. One of the things that Morales and a number of other commentators stress about the hand-leaning rite is that it's not a transfer of the worshiper's sins to the animal. So, and I, I think I agree with them on this for this particular sacrifice. The sins of the worshiper are not being translated or transferred to the animal, okay? And while it involves, I think, and, and I remember we talked about this last week when we talked about Cain and Abel and their sacrifices, right? Um, I think all of the sacrifices involve a confession, okay? But not all of them involve the transfer of sins from the sinner to the animal, um, and I think the reason for this is pretty straightforward. Transferring one's sins to the blameless substitute would undermine the logic of the rite, the, whole, the logic of the whole cult, the whole uh, ritual, what they're doing. And, th and actually, Morales says this about it, quote, We can see that transferring one's sins to the animal would defeat the purpose of it being blameless, able to ascend into the heavenly abode of God as a pleasing aroma, end quote. If the animal has sins transferred to it, you have to ask the question, and you've got to come up with a good answer to this question, I think. If the sins are being transferred to the animal, how is that, sin, that, that, that now sinful thing, that thing polluted with sin, able to ascend into Yahweh's presence, right? And how is that sinful thing um, a pleasing aroma to Yahweh? Now, lest... You'd be worried. Uh, uh, it's not the idea, okay, that our sins aren't transferred to the substitute. They are. And the sacrificial system has a picture of that. It has a right where that happens. 
but I think that probably that's just the rite um, that takes place with the, the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. There, the uh, priest puts his hands, both hands, not just one, both hands on the head of uh, the goat, the scapegoat, confessing all of the sins of the people. Okay, I think what's happening here is he's transferring the sins of all the people to this goat and then sending that goat out. He doesn't go toward the sanctuary and through his blood into the sanctuary. He goes out to the desert, the opposite direction of the people of God and of God's presence in the tabernacle. So there's, um, I think I need to say more about this. So let me, let me do this. Um, I think I need to say more about how we might think about this relating to Jesus's atoning work, because I can imagine having some worries here. If Jesus is the fulfillment, and I'll try, I'm going to try to articulate a worry that I could imagine someone having. If Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament sacrifices, and the ascension offering doesn't have the worshiper's sin transferred to it, how should we think about that in relation to Jesus' atoning work? Are our sins, you know, um, uh, uh, translated or uh, transferred over to Jesus. Does, I think they are, in fact, and the Bible's clear on that. First Peter 2 says that he, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, so we might be the righteousness of God. And so I think, um, the, actually, the solution to this worry is pretty simple. And that's just to say that this particular offering, this particular sacrifice, it just highlights one aspect of Jesus's atoning work. And that what aspect is that? What part of that atoning work does it highlight? Well, just the part where he ascends into heaven and advocates for us with the Father. That's, I think that's a way um, to quell that worry. Okay, Our sins are transferred onto a substitute. That substitute, I think the scapegoat is Jesus, because in the New Testament we, we read, tying Jesus to the scapegoat, that he was forced to suffer outside the city, talking about his death on the cross, okay? Jesus takes our sins as a part, into his body as a part of his atoning work, and he suffers outside the city. So I think he's, um, he's taking on all of the consequences sin could possibly have, namely the, 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 the most tremendous one, the worst one being um, polluted with sin and then being sent away from God's presence into an exile of death. That's what happens in the desert. You die. Okay? And this is <laughs> Israel didn't want to hang out in the desert. They needed to get to the promised land. That's a place of life. Right? So Jesus is taking on that. So our sins are transferred to Jesus. This particular sacrifice, maintaining that the, the sins of the worshiper are not transferred to this particular uh, sacrificial offering does not undermine the idea that our sins in Christ's atoning work are transferred to him. This just, it's just that this particular sacrifice, I think, is probably not highlighting that aspect of it. Does that make sense? Okay. I may have, that may not have been anyone's worry, but I try to think about things that could be people's worry, and I, you know, want to say something about them. Okay. Um, by the way, if you want to, if you want to read a little bit about Jesus ascending into the presence of the Father, First John two talks about this. You get a little picture of this in Hebrews seven, um, uh, talking about Jesus' uh, priestly and advocating work on our behalf and how that's eternal. And then uh, Revelation five um, is also a good picture of this. Okay, so let's look at verses five through nine, and I'll remind you of them 
uh, here. <clears throat> then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so if you go to, I think, your next, uh, maybe your next slide, you'll see that I have... Um, detailed out uh, the steps in the, uh, pro the sacrificial process of the ascension offering, okay? And this is my own rendering. As I, as I went through the text and counted, it looks like, uh, at least in our English translations, there are seven steps. I just want to be very clear that uh, it's possible as you read the primary uh, languages, the original languages, that uh, because of the way conjunctions work, uh, in language, you might find, well, there are, really, there are really only, you know, six steps or five steps or something. But in our English translations, at least the NSV, I came up with seven. Um, so I just want to be clear about that if you're doing uh, uh, maybe a closer study on this portion than I have. So step one, the worshiper cuts the throat of the animal, causing it to bleed out. The text doesn't say cuts the throat, but probably this is what's going on. And that's in verse five. Step two, Aaron's sons, the priests, take the blood, apparently a lot of it. Uh, one commentary, I can't remember exactly, uh, it had to do with the words used, uh, the Hebrew word used there, and I can't remember what it is now. But J. J. Sklar, I think he was a student of Gordon Wenham, he's the one who makes this comment in his commentary that this was a lot of blood that they were throwing around. But the priests then take the blood um, and they throw it against the sides of the altar, that's also in verse 5. Step three, the worshiper cuts up the sacrifice in verse six. Step four, the priests then arrange wood and fire on the altar. That's verse seven. Step five, the priests arrange the parts, for example, the head and the fat. We heard that mentioned a few times. They arrange the head and the fat of the animal on the altar in verse eight. Step six, the priests wash the entrails and legs. I don't have legs on your alls, uh, but I did uh, fix that up here on mine, but it, it's not just the entrails, it's also the legs of the animal, and they wash those with water before placing those on the altar, and that's in verse 9. And then the seventh and final step is that the priests then burn all of it on the altar. That's verse 9. So what I want to do is comment on just a couple of the steps involved in this sequence and try to draw out some of the theological significance of them. I'm not going to talk about all of them. but So let's just start with step one. That the worshiper himself slaughtered the animal, a lot of commentators suggest that this is, um, and I should say this too, uh, there's a lot about Leviticus we don't really know. Um, we, we're, we say a lot about Leviticus um, just by way of making educated, not guesses, but just um, educated statements. But we don't most of the time want to say they're decisive um, because we're not really given an explanation for all of the various types of animals that are used or uh, steps in the process of sacrifice and that kind of thing. So. Uh, the New Testament certainly helps us understand Leviticus better, but um, we're not, again, we're not given um, the meaning of every step and detail of, of what's going on in Leviticus. So that's important because um, I think everything I'm saying you should hear against that <coughs> background. Um, so the worshiper, though, a lot of commentators think that this, uh, that this, this idea that the, um, the worshiper himself slaughters the animal, this builds, sort of builds on the hand-leaning rite 
that, that, that identification of the worshiper with the animal, where the worshiper um, is basically saying as he slaughters the animal that uh, he's, he's, he's willing to die to himself. He, act, he uh, enacts an absolute, you might say, self-surrender in addition to acknowledging his own guilt and Yahweh's judgment that sinners have to die. Uh, being saved through the death of the blameless substitute on his behalf, the worshiper is acknowledging that the only way to approach Yahweh after the fall is through death. And um, I think the lesson here is in part that salvation comes through judgment and death and not apart from it. This is why Christ had to die. So step two in the process, I'll say something about that. Leviticus 17.11 tells us that the, the life of a thing uh, is in its blood. And that God puts forth that blood or that life uh, of the animal on the altar for the Israelite worshipers. God's ultimately the one providing the sacrifice. And I talked about this last week. But since the blood uh, or life of the substitute also represents the life or blood of the worshiper, throwing the blood against Yahweh's altar, I think it probably symbolizes at least, probably more than this, but at least that it symbolizes that the worshiper is coming into contact with Yahweh's holy things um, and I think the altar is uh, closely associated with Yahweh himself, given that it's, um, it's a fiery altar. Um, it's also referred to as an altar of ascension, which I'll mention in a moment. But, um, and uh, Yahweh is depicted as a pillar of fire for the Israelites. This is how they know of Yahweh. They know him by this image of fire on top of a mountain or uh, going along um, uh, before them at night in the desert, right, as they're leaving Egypt. Um, so the altar is closely associated with Yahweh because of its fiery uh, essence, so to speak. And, uh, and I don't think that's too strong. I think there you don't have an altar if it's not a, a, an altar that's got fire on it. It is a part of its essence. Um, but uh, it represents the worshiper coming into contact with Yahweh and becoming holy. And so let me try to convince you of this. So if you go back to Exodus 30, verses 26 through 29, the bronze altar here, it's also known, referred to in Exodus 30, verse 28, as an ascension offering. That, in part, shows you how important this concept of ascension or ascending to Yahweh, how important that is for Israel's worship. But, um, but that altar was holy because God commanded Moses to anoint it with oil, making it holy. And this is what that text says, at least in part. With the sacred anointing oil, you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the altar of ascension with all its utensils in the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. End quote. So having the worshiper having his, his life come into contact with the holy altar of Yahweh that made anything that touches it holy, I think it might mean that the worshiper is becoming holy through his substitute's blood. And this idea that we become holy through the uh, substitutionary blood of Jesus Christ, this comes up in the book of Hebrews chapter 13. So Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. We're set apart and sanctified and made holy through the blood of Jesus, through our substitute. Um, so that might be what's going on here with them throwing the blood, at least in part, them throwing the blood against the altar. They come into contact with Yahweh's holy altar and they become holy too. Might be something like that. I want to jump down and talk about step six. How am I doing on time? 
541? I'm, I'm sorry, wait, what did you say? 1141. And I was like, 541, that can't be right. <laughs> sorry, I misheard that. Step six. So um, why would the entrails and the inward parts of the sacrifice have to be washed with water before being burned on Yahweh's altar? The short answer is I don't know, okay? But not knowing has never made me shut up before. So, no, I'm just kidding. That's, uh, <laughs> um, maybe. Uh, at times, I've, I, that, you know, it's funny. Uh, it's one of the things that I pray for. Um, to, part of being wise is learning when to shut your mouth. And, uh, and uh, I will say this, being married helps you with that. It is a, it is a wisdom-making tool, being married is. Um, but uh, anyway, let me, let me say some things here about this. Uh, and, and all of what I'm about to say, I want to you know, make this conditional on the, like, hey, I don't know uh, if that means anything. Just like, I don't know for sure, but uh, let's see what this, how this comes out. So um, why do we think that these parts of the animal might need to be uh, washed before they're put on Yahweh's altar, his holy altar? Well, um, some commentators have suggested that uh, and this makes some sense to me that the, the legs of an animal and its inner parts um, can become, especially when you're cutting an animal up, can become contaminated with feces. I mean, right? I mean, you've seen the dog use the restroom, especially if it's a hairy dog. <laughs> I'm not trying to be too gross, but you get the idea. Um, and uh, uh, look, I mean, think about the nature of these offerings. This is food for God. Yahweh's fire eats these offerings. And remember, we read a couple of times just in this first chapter that these things have, that they're, it's a, they're food offerings, and they're not food offerings for people. Yahweh's the only one eating them with his fire, right? They're not food, this, the ascension offering is not a food offering for people. It's a food offering for God. It has a pleasing aroma. So it makes sense to me when I read some commentators say, like, look, they just want to wash the poop off of these things because they don't want to put fecal matter um, they don't want to uh, present that to God as food. That makes sense. I, mean, I, I get that. So that might, be, that might be part of what's going on. We're not told explicitly why in the text, but that might be what's going on. Um, but other commentators have suggested that the, the washing of the entrails and the legs, but especially the entrails, um, that's the, the washing of the inwardmost part of the animal. And that represents the fact that as we approach Yahweh, all of us, all of the worshiper, inside and out must be cleansed. And this, this also seems to make some sense to me, um, given that this offering is about the whole animal being offered, the whole person, the whole worshiper being offered to God. Um, and we know from the Old Testament, uh, other places in the Old Testament, just take Deuteronomy 10, for example, Yahweh was never, he's never just been concerned with the outward stuff of human <clears throat> beings. He's also been concerned always with our hearts. Nick talked about this this morning. What did he say? He said, God's always looking at your heart. Just know that. Like, um, this is why we have to have new ones, and he gives us new ones. Um, and uh, our, our inwardmost part gets washed too. What, what right do we have in the temple that is God's church, his people gathered? What washing right do we have that washes our inwardmost parts? Baptism. Yeah, baptism. That's what baptism does. It washes your inwardmost parts. It makes you a new creation. If you don't believe me, read Romans 6. It's, the, it's decisive in my mind. This is what happens at baptism. 
Um, it doesn't mean that it can't happen apart from baptism. I think people are certainly uh, made new creations apart from baptism, but it certainly happens at baptism too. Um, so I think maybe that's what's going on in step six there. It's possible. I don't know for sure, but that's what some people have suggested. So um, verses 10 through 17, then uh, basically uh, these verses just uh, uh, repeat what, uh, what happens with, uh, in the, uh, the, the offering of the bull, the herd animal, just with different animals, uh, just the, the flock animals, uh, which are the goats uh, or a ram because it has to be a male. Um, and then with birds, the process for sacrificing a goat or a ram, a male goat or a, a ram, it's going to be virtually identical to the process for sacrificing a bull. It's just a different kind of animal. And the process for sacrificing the birds, as you may remember, it's a bit different. Um, so I don't know exactly why we use these different, uh, why God commanded Israelites to use these different uh, animals, like the bull versus the goat versus the, the, the ram. I don't know exactly. Um, but uh, if you all have any thoughts on that, I'd love to hear why these animals in particular. I mean, I know they're clean animals, right? I know that much. Um, but why not some other clean animals, right? So don't know the answer to that. But what, would, what I think we're going to do next week is uh, talk again about the Ascension Offering, but talk about how central it is, how important it is to Israel's worship, and when Israelites uh, would, when, when this would show up in their, their daily worship, actually. And we'll probably get into Leviticus 2 and talk about the tribute offering there. All right, so that's it. Does anyone have any questions? Yes. Right, good, good question. So for the recording, um, Colleen's question was, why all of these details, like instead of just like, let's say, pouring or placing the blood, somehow they throw it uh, on the altar? Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, that, that's not made clear in the text, and I just, I just don't know. Yeah. And I don't know, too. I mean, like, and I don't want us to think that every little thing has the, this, like, you know, super deep, crazy meaning or something. I, I mean, uh, it might be the case. We should not rule that out. But it, maybe this is a practical consideration uh, of some kind. Um, yeah. Maybe. And maybe this is just a, an efficient way to do this when you have a, a lot of sacrifice coming in. I don't know. I just don't know the answer. Right. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay, great. All right. Thank you all so much. I appreciate it. See you next week.